0: Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. Title this message, A Go Between, A Go Between um I, I remember as i was thinking back on, i typically do this on christmas i think back through a lot of different christmases i've been through and uh, i remember this one christmas in particular where i was sick the entire break it was in junior high and i, I didn't have uh, a virus I, I had a crush is what it was i'll be real with you guys um and i this is a picture that we should not have brought out um this is me in junior high and, uh, I mean, obviously I wasn't worried cause this guy is clearly crushing it with the ladies in eighth grade, but I was still, I was nervous. You know what I mean? Um, this is a weird photo cause I feel like I look like someone's middle-aged aunt who's <laughs> single and runs a trucking company for some reason. It's a little on the nose, but accurate. And that was my vibe. And, uh, But I remember like having this crush on this girl and, uh, you know, it was, it was sort of building and, and I didn't, I liked her. I didn't know if she liked me like more than friends. You guys know what I'm talking about. And, and yet, you know, I I felt like things were going good. And just sort of as like, you know, the, the, the romance of our daily lunchtime banter was sort of whipping into a romantic frenzy, we went on break and, uh, I then I like she lived in another town, and I had no way of really like getting a hold of her, and it was just like I thought about it every day. I was obsessed with it, right? I I, I was lovesick over it. Don't let the smile on on this middle-aged woman's face like fool you. Okay, that junior high kid, he was like he was he was torn, and so I did what any uh, any of you would have done. Um, in this sort of situation. I became friends with one of her friends that went to my church that was still in contact with her because she lived over in the town that she lived in, and I leveraged that girl to pass information to as a go-between to broker the relationship. <laughs> Looks and brains, okay? And... Like I would, and you guys have probably done this before. Like I gave her a note and then she, and a message, a specific message of how to give her the note and when, and then she would deliver that. And then I would see her back at church the next week during this break. And then she would give me like sort of the reply back from this girl. And she'd be like, so this is what she said. And I'm like, well, how did she say it? Did she say it like that? Did she say it a different way? You know, she said, just. she just basically said, I don't need basically. I need exactly what she said. How did she say it? Which words did she emphasize, okay, when she was like, that makes me excited to, you know, for lunchtime in January? Did she say it like that, or was she like, well, that makes me excited for lunchtime in January? Did she say it like that, or was she like, that makes me excited? I need to know, right, because it's going to change sort of how I interpret what actually happened in this interaction, And it was frustrating, but what else could I do, right? It was a time before cell phones. There was no internet. There was no social media. It was barbaric, you guys. (laughs) And this was the only way I had to like sort of get a hold of her. And I I remember thinking at the time that like, man, grownups do not understand just how how complicated and challenging navigating a relationship for junior hires is. There are so many obstacles to our love. But, you know, once I get a little bit older and I have a car and money, all relationships will be way easier. And as you know that because you've grown older too, I was right. Um, You know, just having money and a car and living together means you don't have any relational issues ever again. No! That's crazy talk. In fact, as an adult, you realize that the biggest obstacles to any relationship and to closeness especially, right, they're not financial or transportational, okay? They are mental and emotional because feeling disconnected is more about uh, comfortability than proximity, and you already know this because you have been in a situation where you have been physically close to someone and yet felt like they were a million miles away, Like, you couldn't have felt more disconnected or distanced from them inside yourself. It's this weird phenomenon. I think when we're younger, you know, we think, like, man, if I could just overcome these simple hurdles of money and a car and being able to live near this person, like, that would make everything easier. But it just gives you easier access to the dysfunction that you've already created inside of that connection, oftentimes. And... Maybe in the middle of a moment where you were near someone but felt far from them, you had the courage to ask, like, is there something between us? And they didn't for a second think that you meant like a physical object, right? They knew exactly what you were talking about in that moment. They knew that you meant like something feels off, like it feels like there's something that is filling up the space between us, like there's this invisible obstacle to our connection, and who knows what caused it? Maybe it was something they said or something that you did or, you know, maybe it was a botched expectation. Maybe it was a bad assumption or a misunderstanding. Maybe it was just that you, like, you, you hadn't seen each other for a while and you hadn't really talked in a while, and so you just didn't know what to say. You didn't know how to sort of go from that superficial level into that deeper, more intimate level of conversation. And it was weird, And sometimes we can repair our relational ruptures ourselves, but oftentimes we we need outside help. And again, you've had this experience, you know, when you were a kid, you occasionally needed a parent to step in and break up a fight between you and your sibling and negotiate terms and figure out whose turn in fact it actually was to sit in the front seat, like big issues, you know what I'm talking about? Or when you're a part of a couple, like sometimes you need the help of a a small group or a counselor or a therapist to actually hear the situation out and get you to hear what each other is saying and figure out like how do we move forward in a healthy way. If you are a business person, you may have had moments where like there is an intense situation and maybe there's like a lot of money and people's jobs on the line and legalities. And so you had to find some sort of a mediator, arbitrator to step in and help you come to an agreement. Or even if there's just like some small annoyance that creeps up inside of your everyday life, What is your instant impulse, right? You're like, on the way home, I'm gonna call my friend and I'm gonna vent to them and I'm gonna ask them for advice and I'm gonna tell them like, is it me? Is it them? What do I need to do? What do I need to do differently? What is going on? You gotta help me. And I think that the more unapproachable a person seems to you or the more high stakes a relationship feels to you, the more likely you are to need help navigating those interactions well. And I bring all this up because I think that no one feels more unapproachable than the creator and sustainer of the universe. What an unrelatable title. I've never even created and sustained even one planet, you guys. I mean, I really can't connect to that sort of all-knowing, all-powerfulness. And I would also argue that no other relationship feels as high stakes as our relationship with God because that has implications to the amount of peace and satisfaction and fulfillment we have in this life and also what happens to us in the next life. That's about as high stakes as you can get. And then to make it even more complicated when there is a rift, I mean, it's kind of our fault, right? Because God is perfect, and you are not. If no one has told you that recently, you probably aren't married. But like, I want to let you know this morning that God is. And a lot of us, when we, when we detect that there's this rift or disconnection, or we feel like there's maybe something between us and God, we have, I think, the same impulse as in any other relationship, right? We want to seek out um, you know, a go-between to help us reconnect and figure out what's off and what we need to do and what we're missing. And this has always been the case. In fact, if you look back through uh, tribal cultures that uh, precede us, this becomes the role of like a medicine man or a shaman or a priest. Um, And also, you would put into that category a magi. Same sort of role, same sort of position, same sort of purpose. And maybe for you, this sort of changes a little bit the way you see the birth of Jesus and this whole story that unfolds in Matthew. I want to give you a little bit of background. Like Magi were known historically to be very devoted to their gods. Um, They performed all sorts of prayers and sacrifices and rites and rituals. They're often relied upon to interpret dreams or maybe even predict the future. Um, because they were thought to have this ability to be able to bridge the natural with the supernatural. And in fact, there's actually a a character in the Bible who is thought to have been a Magi himself for having this exact ability. Somebody who has a book named after them, Daniel, right? He was called upon to interpret dreams as a wise person, bridging the natural world to the supernatural. This is sort of what these people were utilized for at this time in history, in other words, they were divine go-betweens because God wasn't really accessible directly. So you needed a priest or a magi to mediate the relationship for you. And because these mediations were separate or set apart uh, from everyday life, the, the Bible-y, churchy word is holy, right? Um, because they were holy, divine go-betweens, they leveraged a lot of different sacred um, implements in order to set the stage. They operated in sacred spaces, which we would look and say, oh, that's a temple, right, or a church. And they uh, did so amidst sacred sounds, which we would think of as worship music or liturgy. And they often did so surrounded by sacred smells, which would have been like burning incense. And probably one of the most prominent in ancient history was an incense called frankincense, clearly named after Frank and his favorite incense. <laughs> That's not historically accurate. I just, it's what, how I think about it. And if you actually look back through the halls of history, it was utilized in Babylon, Egypt, Rome, Greece, and China for all sorts of religious ceremonies. It has a very sweet smell to it, and it also has this added benefit of repelling insects. And so, when you're living in a like sort of a tropical desert climate in the Middle East, um, you want to be in an environment where this is being burnt because it's going to repel insects and make it easier for you to focus, and worship, and pray. It was rare and expensive, and sometimes it was even used as a currency. And the only people who really had access to it were priests and kings. In fact, some Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches still use frankincense in their rituals. Like if you've ever seen a movie where there's like a scene in uh, like a high church setting where there's like a priest and he's walking up the back aisle and he has like that little lantern thing on a stick and it's like secreting smoke. The smoke or the incense that's in there is frankincense. That's what that is. And it was used for the same reason then that it's really used for now. It was used to bless a place or an object or set the stage for something sacred. And of course, this brings up a big question, especially if you're living in the ancient world, right? Like, how did you know where God was or where these sort of divine interactions or conversations or connections were supposed to take place? And a lot of ancient people believed the cosmos. That's how you would know. Many people really believed that um, God would give them meteorological or astrological uh, signs. You guys have no idea how many times I practiced those words. I still couldn't get them right it is hard to say back to back. And here, here's the, like, the, the layman's version of this. Like if you wanted to know what God was up to, you looked to the sky. You paid attention to the weather and the stars because what these people believed was that our fate and specifically the fate of really important and powerful people and nations was divinely written in the stars. And this is why when the Magi enter into the story and they first appear, the first thing that they are recorded as saying in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2 is, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Because these are Magi, and they stay close to powerful people They are bridging the gap between the natural and the supernatural, and they chart history by the stars. They saw a star that they believed to be a new ruler's star, and they've come to inquire about it. Now, here's more context that the original audience would have known in that region at the time that you and I probably don't know, unless like me, you're kind of nerdy and you spend a lot of time during the week reading history. In Judea, this this sort of region where this story takes place, it was ruled by Rome. And Rome was ruled by a series of Caesars. And the Caesar that was in power uh, when Jesus was born was Augustus Caesar. And he took over for his father, Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar was uh, famously assassinated. There was like a struggle. And right before he died a A star, a lot of people think now that it was like this this enormous comet appeared in the sky. and the common ter- interpretation at that time was that its reason the reason this special star appeared was that it was actually going to uh, take Julius Caesar from Earth and take him into the heavens, where he would be able to continue ruling but divinely so, looking down on the earth from a higher throne. Um, This was his ascension, essentially, from being a king to becoming a god. That's what these people believed. And it was around this time that Augustus Caesar took over, and he's mentioned in the Bible in the Jesus story, And when he takes over, because his father had ascended and was thought to have been a god, he began giving himself a nickname, and he called himself the Son of God, Augustus Caesar. Some of you are like, that title feels familiar in a strange sort of way. In fact, at the time Jesus was born, uh, there were temples across the Roman Empire that prominently displayed the star of Caesar. It was sculpted, it was painted, it was carved into uh, the temples on the inside and outside, and people would come from all over to to pray and sacrifice and worship Caesar and his star. And in fact, there was even a a coin that was commemorated that you can actually still find some in museums today um, that had a picture of Augustus on one side in his name, And that's his head that you can see right there. And on the backside was Caesar's great star with light emanating on all sides from it. And there's an inscription on there um, that is in Greek that essentially says divine Julius. In other words, like Caesar is Lord or Julius is God. That's essentially what the money that these people were handling said, Now, I want you to know all this because it's important to understand that, like, by placing a star at the center of his narrative, Matthew is indicating that his message that he wants to get across is both political and theological in nature. Because he's saying two things that would have been received very, excuse me, very offensively during this time in history. Essentially what he's saying by building all of this stuff into his story is that not only is Jesus a better king than Herod, he's also a better God than Caesar. Are you starting to get a picture of why this empire would want Jesus dead? These are a lot of big, bold claims that threaten a lot of very powerful people. And yet, these are not even claims Jesus is making of himself yet. So in our story, the Christmas story, the Magi follow the star from Jerusalem to Bethlehem where they find Jesus. It says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, that they entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. <clears throat> so... Based on what we now know, why would these magi give him frankincense? Because just logically speaking, you know, priests and magi didn't give incense to gods. That's not the way it worked. They burned it to connect people to the gods. And so in giving it to Jesus and bowing down before him, what it is they're really saying is, you're the priest here, not us. Even though you're a baby, this belongs to you because you are the divine go-between. You are the one that's required for humans to connect to God. And what's even more interesting is, by the time we get to the the rest of the New Testament, you, you see all of these verses... That are written by the the early Christians, the the first Christians that are indicate that this is exactly how they saw Jesus. Let me just read you one of them. This is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. This is an Old Testament or a New Testament letter. It says this Since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, think about how many historical, environmental, contextual clues this writer is like cramming into this one sentence. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. He understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our God. There we'll receive his mercy and find grace to help us when we need it most. What does all this mean? I mean, not only at this time in history did people see God as untouchable and unrelatable, but in many ways, so were the priests. Because in an effort to sort of make themselves or set themselves apart or make themselves holy so they could connect with God, they often lived disconnected lives from real, like everyday people and their struggles and their experiences. And there were all these ritualistic obstacles that you had to go through to speak and interact with a priest, especially a high priest. You were never going to get an audience with a high priest. You may have trusted these people to talk to God on your behalf, but you know, you wouldn't really trust them to relate to you or validate you or be interested in you. And what this verse is saying is something really profound that begins way back at the birth of Jesus. What this writer is telling us is that Jesus is both the God that we're desperate to connect to and the priestly go-between doing the connecting. Jesus is cutting out the middleman that all of us instinctively leverage to navigate complicated, high-stakes relationships. And, And what's unique about this priest, Jesus, is that he is relatable and touchable, and approachable, and understanding in a way that pretty much all other spiritual go-betweens really aren't. And instead of holding people at arm's distance, which everyone would have expected a priest to do, Jesus removes every obstacle between us so he can be close to us. And this is emphasized by the fact that when the Magi stumble onto the scene where Jesus is. He's not in a temple, insulated by gates and guards. He's in an open-air manger. And they bow down before him, and they give him frankincense as their way of saying, we don't need this substance to summon you. You are already here. And by presenting it to him in this moment, they convert a common manger into a holy place. And all this brings up a really big question that I've been thinking about all week. And I want you to think about it too. What if that's still possible? In fact, what if this was a big part of what Jesus was born to do? to help us convert common places into holy places? Like what if in fact, what if you don't have to do all this stuff to conjure up a sacred connection with God? What if instead of of waiting in isolation and in desperation for for, um, you you to do all the right things to connect with him, what if he actually pushes all the obstacles out of the way and comes to find you? What if all you have to do is open your eyes and acknowledge that God is already here? What if he doesn't expect you to like jump through all these hoops or do all these rituals the right way or wear the right thing or go to the right place or burn the right incense? What if God is so set on being near you that he removes every single obstacle in the space between you, including the religious ones that he put there? What if he is so interested in being closely connected in a relationship with you that he is willing to actually come down to earth, be born as a human, push all that out of the way so that he can connect with you face-to-face, person-to-person, without any mediator? Because I think that's exactly the point. And I think this begs a really big question of us. What seemingly common people, places, or projects may God want you to see the sacred potential of? I wonder, like, in what surprising ways may God be attempting to bring you close? This is one of the inspiring things about the Christmas story is that a place that everybody had dismissed was the only place that God actually was. And I wonder if there are places that God is that you assume he can't or never would be at. This whole thing sort of makes me think of this um, Old Testament story. One of the sort of patriarchs of the the Jewish faith, which Christianity grows out of, there's this guy named Moses. And before he leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, um, he is working as a shepherd. And he's out sort of watching these like flocks. And he looks over and he notices that there is this bush that is caught on fire, but it's not being burned up. And as any of us would, he's like, that is weird. And so he walked towards it, right? He gives it more of his attention and focus. And when he gets near it, it, this is what we're told. Exodus chapter three, verse five. There's this voice that says, don't come any closer. Now the bush is talking, that's creepy. (laughs) Don't come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. And, And this is what is interesting to this about me. Moses isn't in a temple. He's at work. He's dirty and sweaty and not at all presentable. The environment does not smell like beautiful, sweet incense. It smells like bad B.O. and sheep dew. Like nothing about this scenario in the Old Testament sounds holy to us, but to God, it was. And nothing about the manger scene on the surface seems holy to us. But to God, it was. And I think the big miracle that we often miss in both of these stories, the miracle is that Moses notices that something he could have easily ignored is rich with a depth of sacred significance. And the Magi have the same epiphany. Thank God they saw it and seized it. And this is the lesson I think you and I can take from it. Any place that you're willing to be fully present in the presence of God becomes holy ground. Maybe like Moses, it's at work. I mean, how crazy is that? Can you imagine, like, think about your job and the things and people you hate about it and imagine for a moment that God wants to convert that space into holy ground so that you can see what he is doing behind the scenes and invite you to be a part of it. Maybe like the Magi, for you, it's it's standing under a hypnotic night sky or maybe over a, a humble baby bed Maybe like Jesus' mother, Mary, it's like at home in your kitchen. Maybe like Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, it's in a bed while you're still half asleep. Wherever this place is for you, I want you to know that Jesus came to show us that we can be close to him no matter where we are, no matter who we are. In fact, when Jesus dies, on the cross, the curtain in the Jewish temple, dividing the space where God is and where people are allowed to be, tears in two. And we're told this because it symbolizes something significant. It symbolizes that the presence of God is now accessible everywhere to everyone, which means the only obstacle in our relationship with God Remaining is our willingness to come to him. To notice the subtleties of where he is and what he's doing and what he's saying. And to open our ears and our eyes and to respond. I don't know what your life looks like this Christmas. Like, you know, maybe you're in a season where you feel far from God. Maybe it feels like, you know, there's, there's something between the two of you. Like something's off. Like there is something that is filling up the space between you. Like there's this invisible obstacle blocking your relationship, and you're not sure why. Maybe it was something that you said, or maybe it was something that, that one of you did. Maybe God didn't deliver on an expectation that you had of him. And that splintered the relationship that you want with him. Now you're not sure what you want. Maybe you're put off by an assumption that you've made about God based on sort of what you've been taught or the experiences that you've had with Christians or the church. And maybe these assumptions have nothing to do with who God really is, but just how you see him to be. Maybe it's a situation where you just haven't really talked to him in a while. So you don't really know what to say. You don't really know how to take things from the surface level down to the the intimate, connected, pouring out your heart, gut level connection that you, you feel like maybe you're supposed to have. And can I just tell you, like, this is one of the things that I feel inspired by every year in the Christmas story is this message here that I think Frankincense, the gift of Frankincense points us to, that Jesus is as close as your willingness to call on him. And in fact, you are always only a whisper away from a holy moment. You don't need the temple structure. You don't need to say all the right things. You don't need to memorize all the right verses. You don't need to have the right incense. You don't need uh, another priest or medicine man or shaman. You don't need a spiritual leader. You don't need a magi. Because you know what all these people, if they really knew what was happening or really understood God would tell you? Go to Jesus. He's the priest, not me. Go to Jesus. He's both the God you're trying to connect to and the best one to do the connecting. He gets you. He's been where you've been. He's been tempted and tested like you've been tempted and tested. He gets the struggles of what it is to be a person in the world. And above all of that stuff, he wants to be close. Meaning that unlike every other relationship where you know you're both a little bit to blame for what happened Jesus understands that you were entirely to blame and yet he is willing to do everything necessary to remove that obstacle so you can be close the journey begins when he's a baby so i wonder for you what obstacles are keeping you from approaching god with with confidence because Jesus wants to clear that out of the way for you. Maybe it's you know, a habit or a paradigm or a past experience or just a sick feeling in your stomach when you think about the year that you've had, things that you've said and done, regrets that have piled up you've never dealt with. Christmas is a call to embrace the invitation of Jesus to bring you peace by eradicating the distance between the two of you in a way that only God can. You see, Christmas is first and foremost about closeness, closeness with God. And it would be a shame to go through the entire season and have all of this stuff that we leverage, just like the prophets and priests of old, to sort of set the stage for a connection to a God, and then never actually engage. What a shame. What a shame to lean into all the sacred implements and never encounter the sacred. What I want you to understand this morning is that God is here. He is as close to you as your willingness to just have the conversation to open your heart, to allow yourself to feel and cry and rely on the God who loves you. And this is what I want to pray into your life today, that as you move throughout the Christmas season, that you would let God in because it is the entire reason he came. You don't need all that other stuff to get to me. I'm right here. Would you bow your heads across this room, As we pray, God, I am grateful for your love for us and I'm grateful for the ways in which you are willing to show us that love. Not just by dying for us, but by even taking on human form. Being born in a place that seemed common and and sort of retooling for us the meaning of what spaces and places and interactions can be holy. God, I pray that you would redeem everything about our existence, that you would not only remove the sin and the guilt and the shame from out between the two of us, but you would fill that gap with your grace and love and mercy and truth. And God, as we come close to you, may we Start seeing that you are everywhere in everything. If we are simply willing to open our eyes and call on you, every moment we reside in can become holy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.